we have for decades put policies and procedures and big thick manuals and things in place to kind of keep folks in boundaries. And I think where we're seeing is there's this swing over to unleashing human potential. What does it mean for me to be here, belong here and innovate here and bring my best here? That's where I think the future of work is going. And at the very, very center of that is employee experience and employee well-being. And when I say employee well-being, I mean the physical and the mental piece of that. That's Brad Shuck, and we love his work. If you've ever wondered if work is impacting your health, this episode is for you. For decades, work and well-being have been separated, and employees haven't felt safe to talk about what's really going on while HR teams and leaders haven't had the tools to measure the compounding impact of workplace stressors. Until now, we are on the cusp of a new era. We explore why the future of work is about illuminating new layers of the employee experience and well-being. We geek out on his emerging work determinants of health research and discuss how the innovative team at Org Vitals is using a new intelligence platform to track, measure, and even predict employee experience or workplace stressors. We also explore the importance of the emerging chief wellness officer role and how all this relates to trends like quiet quitting, employee tracking, and the great resignation. So grab a seat in your wellness room, nestle in, and enjoy this glimpse into the future of your workplace. Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, simplifying today's massive disruptions to work, skills, purpose, and what it means to be human with honest conversation, actionable insight, and a sense of humor. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your humble hosts. TDW fans, I'm excited to introduce you to my friend Brad Shuck. Brad is an award-winning professor of human resources and organizational development at the University of Louisville. And he and U of L are on the cusp of releasing his new research on the work determinants of health, which we can't wait to talk to you more about. We're gonna get deep into that. He's also an author, speaker, and co-founder of Org Vitals, a startup focused on the emerging intersection of employee experience and well-being. And people who work better feel better and ultimately live better. And that's kind of the premise, not only of Brad's work, but of his startup and why he's so passionate about his field. This is a hot new space, that whole startup space about the intersection of well-being and the idea that we can be happier and healthier at work is so big in the future of work. So we're excited to talk about that. But what I love most about Brad is that he resonates with TDW about this heart-centered, and human-centered focus. So he's a researcher, he's a numbers guy, he likes to get into the stats, but he's also a storyteller and he cares deeply about people. And that well-being is table stakes for a healthy human team and an organization. So thank you, Brad, for doing what you do. And we are so excited to have you on the show today. Oh man, I am absolutely pumped to be here with you to talk about this, to dig into the research and and really like figure out like what is this intersection between employee experience and well-being, which has historically just kind of been separate things, right? Like yes. you you could have one, but maybe not the other. And now we're really talking about these as as a single point of focus for organizations that are thriving. That and employees are flourishing in these environments. Absolutely. Thank you, Brad. We are we are thrilled to to begin this exciting conversation with you. And and as we all know, you know, this wellness conversation and focus has really caught fire over the past three years. Uh, workplace wellness isn't something that even existed until about 1980. And now, um, according to the CDC, roughly 50% of companies today have workplace wellness programs. And you're going to tell us, Brad, why so many of them are not uh, working very well for the employees that, that have them. And employees and executives, you know, they need this more than ever now. And mental health challenges at work have become the new normal. And this is across all organizational levels. There is a Harvard Business Review article. Yes, we love to talk about Harvard Business Review articles on this show uh, <laughs> that says 76% of the respondents uh, surveyed reported at least one symptom of mental health condition this past year. And that's up from 59% in 2019. I also want to give a hat tip to some work that's come out of Deloitte 
their chief well-being officer, Jen Fisher, is doing a great job over there, and I really like their work. And they published something called Deloitte C-Suite Role in Well-Being and noted that nearly 70% of executives are seriously quit considering quitting for a job that better supports their well-being. And 89% of the C-suite says that improving their well-being is a top priority for them this year. What's interesting about this article beyond those stats I just shared is that there's a big discrepancy in how the C-suite thinks their, uh, their direct reports are doing and how employees below the C-level actually feel that they're doing. So there's a, there's a real gap. So uh, 89% of the C-suite believes that their employees are, 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 are doing well and physical well-being. 65% of the respondents actually feel like they're doing well in that category. Mental well-being, 84% of the C-suite thinks that their employees are doing well. 59% of the employees actually report feeling well. On the financial well-being front, perhaps the biggest discrepancy, 81% of top-level executives think their employees are doing well financially. Only 40% of employees feel like they're doing well. And that continues as we look at the discrepancies between employees who feel exhausted, stressed, overwhelmed, lonely, and depressed. And all of these are coming in at 25% or above. Uh, from the respondents. And, and stressed, of course, is the biggest one with 41% of employees responding that they feel really, really stressed out uh, today and, and nearly the same feeling exhausted. So, um, Nate, I'm going to hand it over to you to, to sort of dig into this a bit further, yeah. but that's a bit of the lay of the landscape, folks, of where we're so at. Brad, you know this from your research, and we're excited to dig into that now, is there's a discrepancy. But like you said, there's this sort of recognition. We need to be having a an open conversation about what has been held at bay for a long, long time. But there's also a discrepancy between what leaders think is going on and what people are actually feeling. So it's a perfect time to dive into your work and, and recognize that there's this stacked stress and intersectional hardship that has been magnified for the last few years. And if things have gotten a lot harder for people, and it's just time for progress and evolution insert Brad Shuck in this work called the work determinants of health. What is this new field of research? And can you kind of give us an overview of what this is and sort of how it's going to start to illuminate this well-being space at work? Yeah, absolutely. You know, these statistics, Alex, that you shared are they're staggering, right? Like, but they're real. Uh, and anybody who's listening to the podcast right now, you've either, we've either felt that way or we know someone who has felt, I mean, been exhausted and stressed and overwhelmed. And I think about the, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. I think about the financial piece of that, right. Like with inflation and all this stuff coming here, here's what I think I would say is that the current model of work is just right now a little bit broken. Our models were built for a much slower pace where change didn't happen as quickly. Markets didn't shift as fast. The interconnectivity of information wasn't as quick as it was. And now we're at a place where things just feel overwhelming. And when we're at capacity, we just, there's an exhaustion that sets in. I was given a talk a week ago and we talked about how sometimes you can go to bed, like you can be really tired and I can go to bed and wake up in the morning and be like, oh, I feel better. I feel refreshed. I got my eight hours, but that's not fixing that's not fixing how people are feeling, right? Like there's a, there's a bone tiredness to it where that exhaustion is really set in. And that's where this burnout piece is, right? Look, work determinants of health is focused on um, identifying the work and workplace experience opportunities that help people live better lives through their work. And it's focused specifically on health. We're trying to understand how work is either um, applying a level of risk to long-term health conditions, things like hypertension, diabetes, depression, heart disease, and how work is contributing or helping to um, helping to solve for those things. And so the idea was, look, it, are engaged employees healthier? I, I don't know. We wanted to, we wanted to know like, all right, is there a, is there a return on investment for developing cultures where employees can be engaged and they can flourish and they know they belong? 
So we dug into that and we, what we identified through a series of research projects is that, yeah, uh, at the, at the individual level, that's true, but at the biological level, at the, the way that your body physiologically responds to work conditions, we can, we can show how dopamine and serotonin and other catecholamines in your body physically respond to unique experiences of work. Things like belonging or engagement or other things like isolation and loneliness. And interestingly, um, those things tell two different stories, right? Like when we feel like we're not a part of, or we don't belong, our risk for long-term chronic disease goes up. And when we feel like we're in places where we do belong, where I can be engaged, where someone cares about who I am as a, as a human, our risk for long-term chronic disease goes down. Now that that blows my mind that we can isolate unique experiences of work that will influence someone's long-term physical health. Yeah. Not, not at the self-report level, brother, at the biological level. Right. Brad, just to interject, um, I think it was in 2018 that Cigna posted the study that said uh, extreme loneliness has the effect of smoking 17 cigarettes a day yeah, sure. on the body. Yeah. So you're you're right there. I, I would want to know when you talk about the ROI, when you think about presenting a business case, obviously there is a major cost to this because when people quit, you know, the amount that they companies need to spend through HR hiring function and, and training new employees, there's a there's a real cost to that. There's a real cost to increased, uh, you know, uh, health care benefits to, to employees who are who are falling ill or dealing with you know, a variety of these symptoms that you've discussed. Um, have you guys looked at it at that level where you can really provide the granular analysis to go back to, to companies and say, hey, this is what you're, this is what's at risk. This is the financial risk. Yes, um, th that's hard work to do. So uh, getting, connecting with insurance companies or, or those that are involved in the insurance play here, um, that data is really, really um, safely guarded. And so we're con we are continuing to look for partners to help us understand because we need to throw several pieces of data over the fence and we need that data to come back to us. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there is an insurance play here for sure. We published some work um, looking at some uh, ICD-9 codes from the CDC. It's an open access article um, a couple of years ago where we did look at the financial cost for this. And it is astronomical, right? So there is the insurance play, right? Yeah. There's also the performance play, yeah. right? So if we make the assumption that engaged employees also are likely to live healthier lives, and there's some research, there's some really sound research that would suggest that to be true, that they're bringing their full selves into work. They're, they're, they're able to raise their hands in meetings and be innovative. There's a performance play there. There's also just like, a life play here, right? Which is really important to me that work doesn't become an experience that drains us, but rather fulfills us. And I think that's possible. Yes. I think that's the future of work, actually. I think when we begin to unlock this, the human is the last um, is the last great mystery that we need to unlock, I think, in the HR space and the leadership space in particular. We have for decades put policies and procedures and big thick manuals and things in place to kind of keep folks in boundaries. And I think where we're seeing is there's this swing over to unleashing human potential. What does it mean for me to be here, belong here, and innovate here and bring my best here? That's where I think the future of work is going. And at the very, very center of that is employee experience and employee well-being. And when I say employee well-being, I mean the physical and the mental piece of that and how those things are combined to create a full experience of life. In, in the past, there, there weren't tools for this. Mm. So you would have leaders who aren't really equipped to have this kind of a conversation. In fact, some leaders were taught, just don't bring that stuff to work. I don't I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> don't don't bring that stuff to me. But now there's this emergence of tools, and you your work is starting to measure what a lot of people thought was unmeasurable. Like yeah. you just can't know these things, so we're going to kind of ignore that and peanut butter spread the whole thing. So how do you measure this stuff 
and and how will that data start to enter the workplace? Yeah. So let me, let me say one thing about, because I worked in corporate HR before I joined uh, the faculty at the university and co-founded Org Vitals. And that was our mantra too. Like leave, leave your personal stuff at the door, like hang that up before you come in here. I think part of that was middle managers were overwhelmed already anyway. Like they couldn't also take on all these other things. Like there's pressures coming from all the place. This is a systemic issue. There are two ways to measure this. One of them, and let, let me let me back up and talk about what we did in the work determinants of health research that we're getting ready to release and publish. We um, historically, it's been very difficult to pair up work experiences because these are social constructs, right? Engagement is a social construct. Culture is a social construct alongside biological measures. And so I worked with a really innovative and transformational team at the University of Louisville who uh, we collected biological samples from participants. So we got clean catch urine samples or cheek swabs or uh, hair or fingernails, things like that. We were involved in a large uh, study that was um, really focused on collecting bio measures. And we also administered a battery of social science indices around engagement, culture, isolation, belonging, loneliness, all that kind of stuff. Kind of qualitative it, stuff. Uh, it totally empirical, totally empirical. Okay, yeah, okay. all all number stuff, all number okay. stuff. So we would get, you know, you get, um, you know, six questions about engagement or twelve questions about culture, and then we worked with a a really gifted team of of biostatisticians that crunched those numbers and helped us understand how engagement was related to your catecholamine levels or how culture was in, related to your catecholamine levels. And we were able to see a significant pattern. From that, at Org Vitals, we were able to identify, and, and don't miss this, five questions, five questions that are connected to the original research that will give us an indication of someone's risk for long-term uh, health conditions. Now, the difference is in the U of L medical study that we're doing, we're able to identify specific catecholamine levels, right? Uh, which, which a catecholamine level, I didn't know what that was. It's kind of like a crossing guard for your body. You, it tells your body when to release certain chemicals and when to not do those kinds of things. And all of that impacts the way in which your body functions holistically. The U of L study allows us to, to really get at those catecholamine levels. Right now at Org Vitals, we have five questions that are built into our, our Org Vitals 20, which is a simple 20-question culture diagnostic, which then begin to point at risk for disease. Okay. Incredible. Soon, we will be launching the OV20 in those studies. Uh, so we're able to pinpoint very specific questions and very specific workplace conditions that impact long-term health. We're excited about that. We're excited about what's possible for that. So it's early days. The research is emerging. The new tools are emerging. Totally. And we're just, we're just now going to start to be able to see this at a completely new level with new eyes, new transparency, new visibility yep. into what's going on for people. We're trying to shed light on something that was once invisible and bring it to the forefront to empower leaders with information that they have never had before. Never had. Super exciting. It's totally fascinating. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wow. Thank you. Thank you. Let's talk about, you, you mentioned these chemicals that the body releases. Obviously, cortisol right. is what we all commonly know as as stress. And I think stress mm -hmm. is a big part of this conversation and we've been talking about stress and burnout a lot on the show brad i'm going to share some notes from your february 2022 article titled the emerging connection between work and health and you noted uh in 2021 roughly 60 percent of all u.s employees reported having moderate to chronic levels of stress and this affects the things that you just were talking about sleep exercise eating habits blood pressure heart disease and that globally, the World Health Organization reported that wellness expenditures have topped $4.5 trillion, while health expenditures have doubled at $7.8 reinforcing the escalating need for a focus on health and wellness. And as you've been alluding to, your research concludes that authentic connection, purpose, and belonging, these are key ways to, to manage stress and to manage burnout, right? 
And this makes a lot of sense to, to Nate and myself. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about stress and these workplace countermeasures to manage stress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the statistics that you're citing, the 60% there comes right from our work at Org Vitals. Um, and when we look across our, our OV20 global index, we continue to be really just kind of taken aback at how many people continue to tell us that, um, that they worry about work, that they get anxious thinking about work. And what mitigates that? And what I think is so amazing about this is it's people. It's the relationships that we have. And man, this, this is the easy stuff, right? Like belonging is just like inviting that colleague who you've not talked with out to lunch, who's brand new, who doesn't know anybody or seeing somebody sitting up by themselves at a table and walking over and being like, hey, what's going on? My name's Brad. It's great to meet you. Like, brother, these are easy things to do, right. but they're also really easy not to do. Right. Because it can be scary. Do you think to, they're harder to do since the pandemic, since we all got so isolated and since so many of us aren't in the office all the time? Are these harder muscles to flex nowadays? Oh, I got comfortable. I got comfortable being by myself because I could just do what I wanted to do. Right. It was just easier to just be with me. And so to the, the thought of like going back out, I was like, I don't have to do that. But I'll tell you. Um, I've been going back into the office routinely over the last couple of weeks, and I've loved it. It's been fulfilling for me. I've seen colleagues. I've been able to share stories. It's really been uh, an experience of joy for me and connecting back with community. I think we're wired for that. I think yeah. many of us are wired in that way uh, to, to seek that connection and that community out for sure. But Alex, you were asking about good stress and bad stress. Yeah. So one thing that is, um, one thing that's been interesting to me that I learned about in a course on developing EQ was these, was the Yerkes Dodson stress performance curve. So this is something from the early 1900s. It's uh, developed by these psychologists, and uh, they basically discovered that there is an optimal level of stress. And, you know, sitting on, on a beach and drinking margaritas is actually not really good for us as a steady state. Feels and great, that though. To, and that to achieve, <laughs> yes, that feels very feels good not. in the moment, feels very good in the moment. Um, but that to achieve peak performance, that we need a certain amount of stress to be there. And it's a certain level of getting outside of your comfort zone. On the other side of that, there's peak stress that leads to being sick, that leads to disease, burnout and breakdown. Um, so talk to us a little bit about good and bad stress. And where do you find that sweet spot mm -hmm. between, you know, focused and fatigued? Yeah, in the workplace, I'm going to put a, a, diff, a different term on that. I'm going to call that workplace capacity, where we all have a, a level of capacity that um, that is good for us of an amount of work to do every day or um, or a task or a project that is long term, but we know we can we can do it. In behavioral economics, we call this idiosyncratic fit. And idiosyncratic fit is the belief that I can complete and compete. So I can do what's being asked of me and also I can be good at it if I choose to be, right? Like I have the skills and the knowledge and the resources to do that. If I don't believe that I can do something, I, I've been put into an impossible situation. I've been asked to run a project team without the resources that I need to fully fund staff or explore that project team. And I know I'm going to fail. That is, uh, I don't believe I can complete that and I don't believe I can be good at it. As a result of that, the expectation is still there though, man. The, yes, you still, Nate, you still have to do it. Alex, right. you still have to do it. That is a sense of frustration and stress that is overwhelming. And it, what we find is that it physically erodes the body. There's something called allostatic load. Allostatic load is the physical wear on your body from outside environmental circumstances and the allostatic load on your body from bad stress will absolutely hamper your physical, your mental, and your emotional health in ways that are tough to even wrap our well, minds so around. Here's a practical example of two of them. I had two conversations in the pandemic from people I know across the years of being an employee out there in, in corporate America enterprise. And one of them said, I was making a ton of money 
and I started having panic attacks. Hmm. So I had to make the tough decision of, I was under so much load, so much stress at work that I was having panic attacks and I had to go have the conversation with my wife to go, I know we're making a lot of money right now, but I can't physically handle this anymore. I, I have to leave. Now, interestingly, it wasn't safe to have that conversation at work. So this individual decided just like, I'm leaving, took another job. Another example is a person was realized, had the epiphany moment of stress. It was unhealthy stress, unhealthy suffering, sitting in a hospital bed while going through a uh, cancer treatment with the laptop out trying to be responsive to corporate emails. These are real people having real experiences. And that person thought in that moment, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I should be getting healthy right now. And I'm trying to respond to day-to-day -day emails. This is insane. Yep. Yep. Right? And I know those are more extreme examples, but I wanted to put those out there because it's not always simple stuff like I feel overwhelmed on a Monday. Sometimes it's I'm having panic attacks and I cannot stay here anymore. Yeah, and I think that stuff is real. And I think the folks uh, who are listening um, can really relate to that. There's no question about it that you've got listeners right now that have had panic attacks or get the Sunday scaries or get that little pit in their stomach um, when they're parking their car. But but we can we can do better, right? Like the future of work is better than that. Those old models are not the models that we'll be using as we build the future of work. That is not where this is going to land. I, I'm convinced of it. Ditto, ditto, ditto. All right. How about burnout, Brad? So you, you know, burnout is at the heart of the conversation that's going on now in the workplace. A lot of people are looking for a better experience. I don't care what all the reasons are behind it. You, you look at people saying, I need something else. I want a better workplace experience. And, and it, the idea of burnout is, according to the World Health Organization, is characterized by three dimensions. Feelings of energy depletion and exhaustion, increased mental distance for feelings of cynicism related to one's job, and reduced professional efficacy. So I wanted to hear more about, you know, kind of take us through burnout and what's going on there and how that's manifesting for, for people. But obviously, what can we do about it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you a story that I, I like to tell when I'm, when I'm working with organizations. I um. For me, burnout is is very much about a level of frustration. I think that's the first red flag when we begin to feel the emotion of frustration. And I remember we were in the middle of the pandemic and my wife was home and my daughter was home and we have a really vibrant family. My wife is a school teacher. She at the time taught kindergarten. My wife or my daughter was in the third grade and I was up here and there was just a lot. I felt like there was a lot going on at that time for me. And I was up here and I was uh, uh, checking emails, right? Doing uh, like like the story that you told, right? Um, checking my emails, checking my emails, checking my emails. My daughter comes upstairs and she goes, hey, dad, hey, dad, let's, um, let's color. And I was like, oh, that's sweet, baby. Daddy's working. But I tell you what, you give me, give me 10 minutes. Just give me 10 minutes and then we'll, we'll color. And um, she goes, cool, dad, awesome. And she walks away. And then um, she stays gone for what she thinks is 10 minutes, but really is like 45 seconds. Right. And then she comes yeah. back to me and she's like, dad, is it time to, it's time to color now. And I was like, oh, Maddie, I told you, I told you daddy needs 10 more minutes. So I just need my 10 minutes and I'll be happy to color with you. Right. She goes, okay, dad, no problem. And she goes away and she, she comes back pretty quickly. And I could hear her coming up the stairs doom, 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 doom. and I cut it off. I said, Madeline, I need 10 minutes. I just need 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. That right there, not first of all, not my best dad moment. Yeah, um, I recognized in the moment that I was making choices here that would have long term impact on my family, and I was I was putting some things that are perhaps lesser priority in front of the things that were should be my most priority. Um, but you could feel that frustration bubbling up. You know, burnout is uh, a function of two things: too much demand and too little resource whatever that demand and whatever that resource looks like. At Org Vitals, we're developing metrics that get at this specifically and thinking about nine different types of burnout and how that burnout manifests itself, not only in your work, but also in your community and your home life. And I can, I can hear organizations or maybe leaders would say, I don't care about what's happening at home, but you should. Mm -hmm. But, but, but you, sh you should because because that will 
influence the mindset of the person coming in. Look, if I can't pay my bills, if I'm stressed or burned out about that, if, if, I'm, if I'm not able to maintain a healthy work-life balance, I'm not even sure that's possible, but a work-life integration, burnout is too much demand and too little resources. And there's only one way to solve that problem. You either decrease the demand or you increase the resource. That's it. That's it. Now, there are organizational resources. There are things like structures. There are things like systems. There are teams. We can look at redundancies. We can look at automating certain kinds of things. We can look at hiring more people or increasing pay or providing bonuses when we can. And then there are things that are like personal resources, things like resiliency, mindset, where I put my time and my boundaries, how I energize myself. Do I do I work out? Do I eat right? Am I doing the kinds of things that help me uh, flourish? And, and during the pandemic, what we found was a lot of folks did things that reduced that resource. So maybe they had a drink in the middle of the day. Hey, look, it's not a, it's not a problem. Yes, I'm at home. It's, right. it's 1130. I can have a gin and tonic. No big deal. And then you ha- maybe have a, another one at one or, or maybe you develop some habits that didn't help put you in a place to have the right mindset and, or you were worried. Burnout is a function of too much demand and too little resource. There's only and, one way to solve that problem. And I also think that you're, what you're talking about here is that Oh, the space to have a conversation. So if you're under that kind of a load and it's not safe, there's not psychological safety, you don't feel like you can bring that up. Sure. The belonging piece isn't there, right? Then you're, you're suffering in silence, right? And that you're can alone. only go so long before disengagement, disconnection, attrition, something's going to happen where the person just hangs it up. Yeah, yeah. It, it, is, it is why connecting with... I think why connecting with community becomes so important in the future of work and why we're seeing spaces like physically designed spaces to encourage community versus isolation. Like for example, uh, in my office at the university, I have a, um, I have a window that I can see outside of, but my door is fully wooden. Right. And so I can shut my door and be completely isolated. And I think that's the stuff of the past. We're now seeing open concept conference rooms where there's glass and we can communicate and work together and, and innovate across uh, teams and disciplines and, and that's why I think we're seeing some of that stuff. The ergonomic design, the physical design of spaces is being designed to I- increase and include community Connection. as an intentional process. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I call that organizational connectivity. It's like how, how many it. opportunities do you have to connect around the organization? One other thing I want to note that's really important here is um, what Brad your work is doing and org vitals is doing is illuminating. So just the idea of nine types of burnout, burnout used to be this bucket that people would go, I don't know, I think I'm burned out, but there wasn't clarity about that. And then it makes it really hard to take action on that. So when you take it to the next level and say, Hey, which kind of burnout are we talking about here? I'm going to hand that back to you. And now you're going to have language to go take action on that thing. So really important distinction. Let me and say one so helpful when you have a label for something. Yes. I mean, something name it know, to claim it. Yeah. When you have an uncomfortable emotion coming up, can you can you label it? You know, is this is this fear? Is this trust? Is this anger? And I think once you put that label, what what flavor of burnout is this? It calms the nervous system because it makes sense of a thing. It makes sense of a state of mind. And I, I love that you talked about you know, the various unhealthy ways that people are coping with this burnout and how those coping mechanisms are leading to, you know, these these health issues. Um, one other thing I wanted to to bring up is just how stressful this moment has been uh, in the same article from Harvard Business Review that, that Nate and I mentioned at the outset. Um, the article is entitled It's a New Era for Mental Health at Work. Uh, They quote and they say, you know, it wasn't just the pandemic, the murders of George Floyd and other black Americans by the police, the rise in violence against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, wildfires, political unrest and other major stressors unfolded in quick succession, compounding the damage to our collective mental health. And I think that's really important to take a step back and say, you know, a lot of these work environments are pretty toxic. 
there's less hands to do more work. There's things are changing faster than ever. Um, it's technology is taking over more and more, but on the outside, you have all these other stressors that are compounding as well, which just makes it a really, really difficult moment to, uh, to show up in. Absolutely. And, uh, I've recently, uh, I watch the news every morning with my family. And one of the things I've noticed, even about the news, um, is the weather and the weather channel that, that, that we watch is if there's going to be a, a storm coming through, it'll, it, the weatherman uh, who I won't name here will say <laughs> 12 million people will be impacted. And you're like, Oh my God. <laughs> 12 million people? This is insane. Yeah. And so it, it is all of the things that you mentioned here, for sure. And it's all of the other things that are vying for our attention, right? And, and trying to get us to pay, to focus here for just a minute. And sometimes it's just overwhelming. Absolute, mental health is a long overdue, just like diversity, equity, inclusion was a long overdue conversation. Yeah. Conversations around mental health are long overdue. Yeah. So let's take this one step further and talk about why wellness programs are so ineffective, which is what your research has shown. And so some of the things that that we see are that, you know, employees don't know that these programs even exist. Employees are concerned that their their need or their conversation won't be confidential. Uh, wellness programs are only addressing health issues outside of work rather than the toxic environments in work. It's not safe to bring up that work is having a negative impact on my wellness at work because of risk of being fired or seeing as, as weak or inability to cope. Right. Uh, benefits are not matching employee needs. Leaders and HR teams don't have the training or technology or the tools to meet and respond to the needs of their employees and even have these sensitive conversations. So there's a lot of things that are happening that, that, that from our perspective, and, and I think it's a shared perspective of why these things aren't working, I'd love to hear more from you on what's not working and then talk about you know, where you see um, examples of excellence or, or, or where you think things need to go to have these programs be a lot more effective. Alex, I have a lot of thoughts about this. Um, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Um, this is the premise of the work determinants of health research. It is, it's, it's how we got started. Um, I was having a conversation with a, a nurse practitioner who ran our diabetes management clinic at the University of Louisville, and we were just having a, a casual conversation. And I happened to be in the, the employee gym at the time, and um, she has patients that would come in and talk to her every day. And she said, "You know what they talk about? They talk about work." They talk about their inability to manage their diabetes, which will kill them. Uh, and all they do is talk about work. And it got me thinking about how does work impact our physical health, which is which is why we started. It's the it's the origin story of the work determinants of health research. I think that employee wellness and benefits programs oftentimes show no return on investment because the prevailing assumption is that's your problem to solve. Mm -hmm. Listen, we're going to give you a bunch of benefits, right? Yep. And if you don't go take care of them, yep. that's your fault. You're just lazy or you're apathetic or you're undisciplined. And I don't think those things are true. I think what's happening is that there are conditions of work that are exacerbating, right? Uh, someone's health conditions and puts them in a cycle of what we call dysfunctional wellness. But it's it's a safe place for an organization to be. Here's the benefits. Listen, we we provide uh, an EAP program. It's just nobody ever uses it. We provide smoking cessation or Alcoholics Anonymous programs or weight loss programs. We, our participation is just really low. You know, I don't know. Um, those things don't fix health on their own the conditions of life influence our health and our well-being in inextricable ways they are we are unable to divorce our environment which includes our work from our health and our relationships and i think in the future of work and where this is going to be massively disruptive is that organizations are going to going to become partners in this conversation that's the tool that we're building at org vitals is, is to help organizations be empowered with data that they've never seen before because it was invisible 
now you have that data to to have conversations and to help people live better lives through their work. Brad, let's link two things together here now that are, um, one is quite um, established and one is very new. Social determinants of health has been around for a while. Work determinants of health is this emerging piece of research, but would you, for our listeners, connect those two? And, And then what we're talking about here is an integration that just hasn't been there before. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So, um, uh, work determinants of health is an intentional play on social determinants of health because a lot of people understand that framework, you know, social determinants of health are systemic environmental conditions that impact someone's uh, risk for chronic disease or, or mortality. So for example, depending on where you live in a metropolitan city, you could be at a higher risk for type 2 diabetes than if you lived in another part of the city. Mm. Part of that has to do with the availability of food or water or education or financial stability. Um, Those would be social determinants of health. Now, where the research has been on this is we want to solve for those things. So, if we identify a food desert, we um, we want to be able to put grocery stores um, and fresh produce that are affordable in those places. If if it's an education issue, we want to build more quality schools and get more quality teachers that are teaching in those places. Work determinants of health. Um, f- well, for a long time, work has been included as a social determinant. But oftentimes that social determinant has been things like, do you work around chemicals? Mm. Are you in, are you in a safe physically safe environment? Like, are you climbing ladders all the time? And are you on the roof and roofing? uh, Running a chainsaw. Yeah, exactly. Are you running a chainsaw, right? Like, and if you are, then you're more likely to be at risk for disease, like, you know, cut your leg off or something like that. Work determinants of health look specifically at the social factors of work. Things like stress and capacity, our ability to have relationships at work. And it illuminates those experiences and it elevates them to the same level of tangible things that we can see. See, you can't see engagement. Like we can't buy that on Amazon. Like I I can't two-day prime that, right? I can't go to Walmart and buy belonging or I can't go to the grocery store and buy purpose. And so for a very long time, organizations haven't had the metrics they've needed to understand that. Now we have those specific metrics. Thank you. For really important. And let's tie this now to an emerging position. So enter the era of the chief wellness officer. Mm-hmm. So only in the last maybe two years have we started to see these postings in the C-suite called a chief wellness officer. And it's this idea that someone needs to be at the head of this ship. So Brad, your research is saying, hey, we need to pay more attention to it. Let's go grab the data. But I, uh, and, and I want to see if you all agree with me that the chief wellness officer is going to be the person inside of the organization who now takes a hold of this strategic play and says, yeah, we do need to pay more attention to the overall wellness of our people and what that's doing to the employee experience. And naturally that chief wellness officer is going to say, well, I need tools. I need better tools. I need better visibility. I need better transparency. I need better partnership in and outside of my organization to start to be able to do something with this. Is that fair? I, I absolutely think it's fair. I think the the tools that we used a decade ago, um, before, yeah. So I mean, so, yeah. I mean, they haven't changed. Like how how is and I, I won't name the consulting companies here because I think they do good work and every and it's well intentioned. I say I don't think there's any malice here, but how can a survey from 1990 still be relevant in 2002? Like work's not changed. Work's not changed in 30 years. Like how is that possible? And so, yeah, I think we need new ways of understanding collaboration and connection, which I think is really important. Being able to, to, to physically map that and then overlay culture data on top of that so that we understand where are the pockets of where people don't feel like they're connected and how do we connect them? How do we go get them and, and, and help them feel heard and valued and seen and a part of? And oh, by the way, if we do those things, if we can do those things really well, we can help those people also live fundamentally different lives yes. because of what's happening here 
And those things are going to matter. And they're not, it's going to be sooner rather than later. Chief wellness officers need new tools. Yeah. And, and there's I'm a culture finding. shift behind this too, yeah. right? Um, having been in, in HR, learning and development, organizational development, strategy and innovation, you're going to, there's a reactive culture that waits until there's a fallout, right? Something went wrong. Oh no, let's go and triage it. But what you're talking about, what Org Vitals is um, moving toward is this idea of predictive and proactive. Hey, That's let's right. see if we can find those blind spots early. Let's see if we can look around that corner and see what's going on and then give that to this chief wellness officer and that the people in that department to try to get ahead of things before they turn into a dumpster fire, right? That's exactly right. To give them the tools that they need to have conversations today, not tomorrow or next week or or build models where that stuff is just the norm. Like, well, we just expect, you know, 75% quit rate. And that's just the norm for us, right? Like that's bananas. It's bananas. Like, why, why is that acceptable? Why, what would happen if, if culture was a part of the benefit package yeah. where culture was overlaid on top of and empowering to not only just the employee, but the organization and and maybe the community as a whole, like it changes everything. Yeah. It makes it into the strategic plan. Like think about most organizations don't have wellness and culture on the, str the strategy. It's just ha typically hasn't been there. But by putting someone else up in the C-suite to watch that piece, I think we have a real shot at that. Yeah. Nate, would you agree that that's probably just been a cost function in the past? Yeah. Wellness is just a cost. Yep. Yeah, it's not strategic. It's not a strategic advantage. But um, Brad, I think your friend Steve Cadigan called out in terms of talent, we've seen the best of the talent pool. And at this point now, there's a reskill, upskill, future skill going on that's creating a huge talent shortage. So now couple that with this conversation and go, wow, I'm going to have to really protect, develop, nurture, and foster the talent inside of my organization or I'm going to be hit hard with this talent shortage. So it really ups the ante on that. Yeah. I love to hear Steve talk about that. Um, and I've heard him ask questions around, you know, if you couldn't recruit for the next five years, how would you grow your business? Mm. What would you do? Mm. And that conversation fundamentally shifts because right now the answer is, well, I would just go recruit more talent. Oh, but you can't. can't. What would you do? Boy, you'd take better care of, it would elevate mental health. It would elevate belonging. It would elevate physical, like these things now become incredibly important. In addition to the upskill, the reskill, the adaptability and the connections and collaborations that we have across organizations become critical, man, critical. Yes. And on the other side, you know, all these, all these skilling efforts and efforts to unlock human potential they require engagement they require belonging they they re require a sense of i know why i'm here and on the other side you've got now this huge uh group of younger workers who are doing something that is called quiet quitting right so this is uh this is a new term and it means employees that are not leaving their jobs but instead, you know, rejecting the idea of going above and beyond and just finding a way to kind of coast. And there's been a, a, a bunch of viral videos on how to be a quiet quitter, how to fly under the radar and keep your job because <laughs> um, people want to keep the benefits, keep the paycheck, and they don't want to go find something new, but they don't want to, you know, put in any more effort. Um, one of the uh, one of the folks who put up a, a viral TikTok video said the his his premise was that you're no longer subscribing to the hustle culture mentality that work has to be your life. And according to uh, the New York Times, you know, engagement um, is pretty much at an all time low in this last quarter at 31 percent. So this is a real challenge for 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 the C-suite for wellness officers, and um, I just want to share one more nuance to make this even more complicated, you guys, which is the idea of monitoring employees at work. So quiet quitters also have to face up to monitoring efforts. Um, there was this incredible article in the New York Times about a week ago talking about the endless ways that companies are monitoring productivity. 
of their employees nowadays. And it's really shocking. It's very, you know, Orwellian 1984. I mean, super big brother, super, super creepy. Yeah. Um, and it's everything from, you know, a woman at the checkout, uh, a, a checkout clerk at a grocery store feeling like she's got a Russian old lady along because she's got to check the groceries through faster to, you know, creatives who are saying, hey, my work that is being tracked on my machine uh, is not being fully tracked because I'm a creative and I'm using a pen and paper to do all these things and I'm doing tissue samples and whatnot and none of that's being tracked. And respondents called these practices demoralizing, humiliating, and toxic. So I'm going to pause there. I'd love to get your thoughts kind of on one side. How do we think about engaging quiet quitters? What do they need? And on the other hand, what do you think about these practices of monitoring? Eight out of 10 of the biggest employers in the United States are using monitoring today, which is shocking. I don't, ha I don't have words for that. I, I, I don't understand how somebody thought this was a good idea. If you're listening and you're a leader who has influence over this, like I want you, like that's a bad idea. You need to stop. It's terrible. I, um, when you were talking, Alex, I remember my wife, when we lived in Miami, worked for a hospital and worked particularly in pediatrics and pediatrics. I'm, I'm sorry, um, Brad, I didn't hear you. I just quietly quit. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you, right? Can you say that again? Can you say that again? I didn't get it the first time. I was busy thinking about something else. And um, she worked with, uh, she worked as a child life specialist, which is a, a very special group of people in the world who oftentimes you will only meet if you are going to have a, a rough conversation or a really tough day when you have a little one and they're involved. And a child life specialist will come in and explain what is happening and they will help with the social and emotional needs of the child while they're in their hospital stay. And one of the things that they began to implement in this particular hospital was timing patient visits. Now, th these are kids who are going to get diagnoses that will forever change their lives. Hmm. And they're timing the visits. Efficiency. It's a, it, and, it, and they would get graded on this. Like, well, you spent too much time in this room. Look, if my kid is getting a cancer diagnosis, I need the time to process this with yeah. somebody. This is not in the name of efficiency. And these is this is why I say like the old models are broke, man. Those models, they, they do not operate in this new world. And organizations that hold on to that kind of stuff, they will find that they are at a significant, significant... <sighs> I don't even have a word for it. They, disadvantage. They, disadvantage. They just won't be able to compete. They're going to be yeah. at a significant disadvantage for retaining their talent, for recruiting talent. It's just not going to be there for them, for sure. And so I, I, I don't, I'm thankful that I work in a place that doesn't monitor me yeah. because I would imagine it feels a little bit like if you have kids, um, sometimes my daughter will come in our bedroom at night and she'll just stare at me. While I'm sleeping, <laughs> and then you wake up, and you're like, "Oh God, what's going on? <laughs> Jesus, what's happening in here right now?" And I would imagine like that's how that feels, right? Yeah. The first time somebody's that's a great way to describe. Monitored, I've right? had that experience, bad, where my son woke up early or late at night, and he's standing next to me, and he's just looking at me, and he'll go, "Daddy," and I'll be like, "Ah, <laughs> ah what? I'm sorry, I was I doing something." Relate to this, 100. Yeah. percent yeah. Crazy, man. Yeah, I, I think the quiet quitting thing, I think, is an interesting movement. I, I do want to make sure that in my own mind, as I think about this, that I, th I think it is a cute way to villainize employees who are having a tough experience right now. Mm -hmm. um, and I've I've seen lots of examples of this where like um, there have been consultants who have a, there's a financial benefit for them to come up with a new term that they can then go yes. in and solve. It's not new. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not new. It, it, one particular consultant um, put out a series of videos that called employees, disengaged employees, vampires because Whoa. they suck the lifeblood. Now, look, is that cute and kitschy? It is. Does that help anybody? It doesn't. No. It doesn't. How do you re engage? quiet quitters, you give them a reason to engage. When I work with organizations, one of the questions I ask 
is why would someone engage here? You see, engagement is an unbalanced state of being. I cannot be engaged here and also be engaged someplace else simultaneously. I'm making a choice to do something different. And if I, if somebody wants me to put my effort and time into a place, they have to provide the reason. In some ways, I think the quiet quitting thing is an interesting employee phenomena. But I would imagine if we flipped the script on this and we asked employees, how many of your employers have quietly quit on you over the last decade? I think we might have a very different conversation where benefits have been reduced back or experiences or culture has been um, been diminished. I think a lot of employers would say, yeah, I don't have a reason to be engaged here because I don't feel like I belong or I'm connected or I'm a part of. And so I'm going to put my effort and my energy in a different spot. Somewhere else, purpose and belonging. Um, that, it, quiet quitting is not new, but one thing that just in novelty land that is new, and I've been seeing a few articles about, I don't know if y'all have seen this, is outsourcing your work. So digitally now, it's possible for someone to accept a job who's a remote worker, pass that work back to other people, and then submit the work as if it's them. And part of this thing that's fascinating to me is in my entire life of working, I've never had the idea. Of course, if you have an intact team, you work together to deliver work. But this is not that. This is literally handing off outsourcing work and then passing it back through to your employer as if it's you. And there have been some employers who flagged some people and said, yo, you're not doing this work. It's someone else. Because digitally, we can see the fingerprint. Sure. It's fascinating. Amazing. I mean, this is okay. the, the, the equivalent of having somebody write your term paper. In yeah. High I mean, it's the same thing. It wasn't you. <laughs> Let's bring this home. We've talked about a lot of things, and this is heavy stuff, and yet it's really important. We are very optimistic about this new space that's emerging. The intersection of employee experience and wellness is really, really important to the future of work. It's very important to us as human beings. And so this dawn of a new day where we can get more support from our organization and our organization can get more out of us, lifting us up to achieve our potential while moving the organization forward. We think this is absolutely possible. That's why we had Brad on the show because he believes that's absolutely possible. If we get, if we have the courage to leave these old models that are breaking down and broken and we can shift over to some new mindsets and some new tools and some new roles and some new ways of thinking to give people a better experience. It's going to be good for all of us, individual, team, organization, and the greater good, right? So we're excited about that. But we have to ask you, Brad, these are really exciting developments. Would you, what would you say in the next maybe two years, maybe three years we can expect on this front? Do you see some big shifts happening? I do. I see huge shifts happening. First, I see, <clears throat> I see things like hope and joy and love and words that we typically wouldn't have talked about five, six years ago, being a part of vernacular that we use regularly. I, I use at work the idea at, at work at work. I use the words joy and love at work yesterday, um, talking to some folks, and it's beginning to feel comfortable. Um, as a part of saying, I see you, right? Like there's a sense of belonging. I see connection and collaboration being elevated. How that work's getting done, not just how much work is getting done, is going to begin to take center stage. This is going to require us to develop new tools and new ways. And that's we're constantly innovating at Org Vitals using research science-backed data points to then feed into models that we have at Org Vitals to give chief wellness officers, to give leaders, to give HR leaders data they've never even they've never even believed they could see yeah. in a proactive way that helps them take action in ways that support their employees holistically, not just how many how many widgets did you get done today, right? Or or did you did you uh, stamp your time card the correct way? Look, those things are important. I get that. But there's so much more we could be unlocking by looking at data insights that prior to today have been invisible. Yes. 
for the good of purpose, for the good of belonging, for the yeah. good of culture, to to lift everyone up to have that better experience. I love it. And I'll Brad, like- you're not saying I feel joy when there's a catered client lunch and I really love the black <laughs> and white cookies that they left behind for me. Yeah. Let me tell you okay. a story. Let, let, me, let me tell you a story about that though. Cause I, I, I you're, cause you're right. Um, it is not about pizza parties and blue jean no. Thursdays. Good. I was, I was giving a talk to a group of, um, prison guards a couple of years ago and i would routinely were you say, in hey. prison at the time or no <laughs> thankfully i wasn't thankfully okay. i wasn't just want to be I wasn't, okay for that, our audience yeah, that's brad a, has never been in prison this is not a prison guard interview well well, well i didn't say i'd never been in prison i'm just saying that <laughs> this talk, i wasn't in prison and i was making that I, I made that that claim and i was like you know guys look pizza parties are not a employee engagement like it doesn't foster employee engagement no. and i had i had somebody come up to me afterwards and they said you know every month um our leaders our uh our deputy and and warden give us um lunch and oftentimes it's pizza and they said it's the only time i ever see i ever believe they see me it's the only time i've ever felt like they know who i am and at that moment i was like oh it's about intentionality it's a it it isn't about putting the cookies out and walking away or putting the pizza out and walking away. It's the intentionality behind it. And that's why that, that's why things like you can't take something out of one culture and put it in another culture and just hope it works out for you because the intentionality isn't there behind it. It is it is so much about authentically connecting with people and seeing them. And let and making sure that they know you value who they are for sure, man. Absolutely, especially now. Brad, yeah, I want to take sure. you into a speed round. Your um, job is to answer these questions quick 30 seconds or less. Your okay. first question is What called you to this work? My family, my family called me to this work. Building a better life and a world for my daughter is why I do this work. I love that. Beautiful. How have you personally experienced? the work determinants of health in your career? I worked for a leader uh, one time that I would consider stinky. Uh, we have a <laughs> series of research around stinky leaders. Uh, and um, he impacted my physical health in ways that um, I thought I was, um, I was experiencing severe depression. Wow. What is the utopian view for wellness at work? And I, I just what, where do you see this thing really shining? I think people live fundamentally different lives because of their work and through their work, not just go to work. Right. Who is doing this right? Who has taken the lead in the work determinants of health company? Example? I have a terrible answer for that. I don't know. I don't know. I think this, this, is such, this is so new right now. And this is such an emerging conversation that we're even talking about health at work and mental health. I don't, I don't have a good answer for that one. That's a good question. You should have said the disrupted workforce. <laughs> the disrupted workforce is doing this well. We can do that again. <laughs> the disruptive. I can tell you who's not doing this well, but this is not. This is the sunshine stuff, man. Okay. So, do you foresee a future where there are healthier boundaries between work and life? I know that everybody's kind of given up on work-life balance, but is there a future where this gets better? I think there's an integration where it gets better. And I think their boundaries are a part of that. Healthy boundaries are a part of that. Technology can get in the way of that sometimes. The first thing we do is check our email in the morning. But yeah, I think there's an integration where work and our personal life become uh, a part of the same conversation. Last question, Brad. What is next for you with your research on the work determinants of health? Yeah. I'm going to tell you three things. Uh, we want to expand nationally. We want to find organizational partners who are interested in this, who want to be a part of this work and have conversations about how work is impacting people's physiological health. And we want to go after funding with the uh, uh, NIH and CDC. Ooh, that's awesome. So you're actively looking for partners and probably in 100%. lots of different segments, such as academia is just as valuable as corporate, just as valuable as small business and a nonprofit and the whole thing. Yeah, we're looking for a, a research to practice pipeline, evidence-based practice and action research right here, for sure. That's wonderful. Fantastic. Fantastic. Brad, thank you. Thank you for 
bringing this body of research to the world, to you and all your partners, everybody who's working on this new work determinants of health. Thank you for caring so much about making life better for people, especially now in this disrupted period in the future of work. And thank you for coming and joining us on the podcast, right? To share this important work so we can get it out to the world and we can help you magnify the impact that you and your peers are making. Man, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. If you like what you heard, please be sure to give us a rating. Five-star reviews are, of course, acceptable, and please also share this with your people at work and at home. The Disrupted Workforce was created to address the transformational change that's already begun and to help individuals and organizations grow in these dynamic times. We are excited to be on this journey with you, and we are here to help. See you next episode.